All right. Well, it is great to see everybody here this morning. Welcome back after summer's completion. Um, It is really, really good to be in the Lord's presence. Today, I want to be speaking with you and to you and uh, out of 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 19. And we can have that slide come up anytime. And uh, we're going to pray together, but I just want to give some some context. Um, I've been pastoring here for seven years, and there has never been a time where there has been so much crisis happening across the church. It's, it's uh, staggering, actually. Uh, marriage problems, uh, sin boiling over problems, um, uh, some people grieving losses in family members, just uh, every, every few days something that is like a big deal happens and has been happening since we got back from holidays, essentially. And so, just so you know, you probably already do know, but... Um, Whoever you are, if you're a part of Calvary Chapel, there are people that you know and care about who are really hurting right now. And so what God has been doing this morning and what we're going to continue to do is just fix our eyes on Jesus and be looking to him. And so I'm going to read the word of God to us and and then we're going to pray together. And I really want to invite you to join with me in, in prayer. These are the very words of God. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Why don't we read this again? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Let's pray. Father, I just lift up to you the the worth of Jesus I lift up to you your intention for sending the Holy Spirit into our midst. And I pray, Father, that you would do all that is on your heart for us this morning. Father, we know that on the one hand, you are the most compassionate and gentle and loving Father that the human mind cannot fully comprehend yet. And at the other, on the other side, you are working out a plan that involves each one of your children carrying a cross in this life as they are led through their purpose in life until we see you face to face, either when Jesus returns or at death when we are brought into the presence of God. And so, Father, my prayer this morning is that more than just reading words and saying, okay, I get it, you would send the Spirit upon us in a fresh way to write the word of God onto our hearts. Lord, that you would bind up the broken, that you would encourage those despairing, and that you would supply the supernatural miracle of the work of Christ in the lives of sinners. For your glory's sake. And I ask this for your name to be made great in our midst. And all God's people said, Amen. This morning, I really just want to work through this sentence, um, section by section. And I think as you read this, one of the, the parts of this verse that can stand out and seem strange or troubling, 
would be the phrase, according to God's will. Therefore, let those who suffer, that's many of us, according to God's will, what? What what? What are you talking about? What do you mean there's a kind of suffering that's according to God's will? What do you... Hold on a sec. What? So when I read this verse, this is what sticks out to me first. In the mind of the Spirit coming through the Apostle Peter, there is a kind of suffering that is according to God's will. And this is the person that, Paul, that Peter, excuse me, is addressing in this call for them to entrust their souls to a faithful creator. And so as I'm thinking about this, I actually think that there are two ideas that Peter has in his mind, plus some more ideas that we can apply to our lives. And the first is this. If you read the verses before this, this is what Peter says. He says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And, quoting scripture, if the righteous are scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Question mark. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So the first thing that we can look at to answer the question, what does it mean to be suffering according to God's will, is this. There are times in human history where God says, I am going to enter into judgment. And according to Peter, some of those times, at least, maybe many of them, the judgment actually begins with the household of God. And I'm not totally sure what Peter was thinking of. When Peter wrote this letter, he was expecting Jerusalem and the temple to be destroyed because Jesus had prophesied that that would happen in their lifetime, and it eventually did. In AD 70, Jerusalem was destroyed and the temple was destroyed. And so they were looking forward to a gigantic world upheaval, upheaval, excuse me, for the people of God. And at the same time, Jesus had prophesied that there would be regular sweeping persecutions of the church by the Romans, which hadn't been happening too aggressively at this point, but there were going to be times where Christians would be rounded up and taken to Colosseums and fed to lions in front of thousands of cheering Roman citizens. These days were coming. And as Peter understood it, these trials were actually the beginnings of God's judgment on the unbelieving world, but he sweeps through the church first in order to purify her. So to say that again, according to these scriptures, there are times in human history where God enters into judgment with the world to bring justice, to punish sin, to shake what can be shaken so that which cannot be shaken will appear and stand. But the church is not rescued from this or immune to it. It actually begins with us so that we can be made holy. And so our little idols and our areas of selfishness can be exposed as just that so that we can be purified and brought to the Lord. And I think this is true because of a few verses before what Peter just said, and I read to you there. He says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial which, when it comes upon you, to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. 
If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Here's where I just read, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? So the second way that we can see that people will suffer according to God's will is to suffer unjustly for the sake of Christ. Okay, so he's saying, I don't want you to suffer as a murderer, meaning that you get caught and beat up and executed for it. I don't want you to suffer as a thief, meaning that you get caught and exposed and repay. I don't want you to suffer as a meddler, meaning you get caught and humiliated and people don't trust you anymore. He's talking about Christians suffering unjustly because they have the name of Jesus on them. Sometimes this is really... um, thoughtfully done people are just like i hate christians and so i hate you and sometimes there's just the enemy at work and people who don't understand the true motives of what's going on and he works through unbelievers this is what the scriptures say in ephesians that the prince of the power of air is at work in unbelievers and he does enjoy inclining them to do wrong things to those who bear the name of jesus and that's just part of life in the flesh and that's what peter is addressing here Not only these things, but we do live in a fallen world. When Adam and Eve first ate the fruit in the garden, and God responded to their rebellion by afflicting them with broken relationships in the home, and broken relationship with the world, and ultimately death and expulsion from the garden, the world was catastrophically broken. And God is still upholding that judgment. There is going to be a day when Christ returns, where there won't be any death and there won't be any sickness and there won't be any sadness and there won't be any rainy days on park days unless that's what you want because a little bit of rain when you're at the park can actually be kind of fun. There just won't be any bad things anymore. But that day hasn't come yet. And so in the meantime, it is God's will that we live and endure in a broken world where people will get sick and all of us will get old. And someday, if you live long enough, you'll bury everybody you know. And that, for the, for the time being, it is God's will that his children endure such a state of things. And like I said, Jesus Christ is coming back and he will put an end to this stuff. But in the meantime... Sometimes you all get strep strep throat on the first week of school. Sometimes people get in car accidents. And in a sense, it's God's will because he hasn't stopped it yet, though he will. And I also want to add one more way that I think is fair, that I don't think Peter was talking about, but what I think is worth talking about. And that is the kind of suffering that's according to God's will where he comes to one of his children who has been, who are stuck in some kind of sin or rebellion. And he increases the suffering in their life to the point where they're finally ready to deal with it. That is a way of suffering according to God's will where we've been getting away with stuff and getting away with stuff and getting away with stuff and all of a sudden God ambushes us and he breaks us, and it really hurts. 
all of a sudden we're in a place where we're ready to deal with our idols and deal with our sin and actually have the relationship with God that he wants. It is a kind of suffering that is according to God's will. Sometimes we call it a severe mercy where he breaks us so that he can remake us actually knowing Christ. He shakes our false hopes, our false securities. He shakes it so that they fall down so that we can realize I actually wasn't trusting Christ and now I want to. Maybe you can see yourself in one of these places. And if you don't, if you were just having the best week ever and you're wondering why everybody's so glum, you know what? Bless you. Don't say anything about it, but bless you and you just enjoy the Lord. Um, And maybe someday when things are going a bit harder, this sermon will be online. All that to say, the Holy Spirit does call us as those who suffer according to God's will, sometimes justly, sometimes unjustly, sometimes specifically, sometimes just generally, to a response. And that response is to entrust our souls to a faithful creator. That's what we're called to do, to entrust our souls to a faithful creator. And I've been thinking about this because this is a phrase that doesn't appear tons in Scripture, a faithful creator. You hear lots about saviors, sometimes about deliverers, sometimes about the Son, sometimes about God. You'll hear lots of titles. But this, to me, is a rare descriptor, a faithful creator. And so as I've thought about this, what it, what it provokes in me is a couple of things. In Scripture, when the people of God turn to God as the creator... When they, when they start to pray and they say, Lord, you are the creator of heavens and earth. What they're doing is they're confessing that God really, really, really is in control. Human beings can create things that, we can, that can get away from us, that can get out of control. The story that's been going through my mind, you might remember a few years ago, there was a very famous car manufacturer. I think at the time they were the world's largest car manufacturer but they made a bunch of vehicles where all of a sudden the gas pedal would get stuck on and the brakes wouldn't work. And you were hearing these stories about people careening down highways at 150 kilometers an hour, 200, and often with a really bad ending. And there were creators of those vehicles, but in that moment they couldn't do anything about it. And I'm just picturing in my head, you know, all these kind of pocket protector, big glasses, people just running down the street trying to catch this car that is completely out of control. They made that thing. But it got completely out of control. It was not, it was not, they couldn't stop it. But in scripture, when the patriarchs and the prophets and the apostles turn to God as the creator, they are confessing that God has made something here that he still rules over. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. And though sometimes we can really wonder what he's doing, his creation is not out of his control. You can think of Colossians where Paul confesses that all things were made by Christ and for Christ, and that in him all things hold together. You can think of uh, the beginning of Hebrews where it confesses that all things are upheld by the word of Christ's power. Right now, right now, The entire creation is upheld by the power of Christ's word. 
because he still speaks chair. You don't just fall to the ground because your chair just disintegrates. And there was this big movement uh, years ago during the Enlightenment where this thing called, I think, deism was either created or refined, where there was this idea that God created the universe like an expert clockmaker full of laws, like the laws of physics and the laws of care, uh, chemistry and the laws of relationships, which we still haven't figured out yet. And uh, just all kinds of moving pieces that intricately work together. And then he made it and he closed the door and he wound it up and he's been watching it work since then. And that is a completely false view of how the Creator rules over His creation. He is intimately involved with every second of every moment. He knows where every molecule is, not just knowing it, but upholding it and commanding it by the word of His power. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. But just knowing somebody who is all-powerful doesn't mean that it's going to be of any benefit to you. And so Peter calls us to come to God, not just as the creator and who knows how things are going, but as the faithful creator, the dependable creator, the loyal creator, the one who upholds his covenant promises with those who look to him. Entrust your soul to an all-powerful being who is faithful to people just like you and me. And you might even we might even notice that when Peter calls us to do the entrusting, he doesn't say entrust your money or entrust your house or entrust your future or entrust your collectors, Nintendo entertainment system that you hope to sell for 10,000 bucks in 50 more years when it's really, really, really rare. He says, entrust your soul. That most precious thing you have that Jesus said, what, what does anyone gain if they should get the entire world but lose their soul? That, that part inside of you, which is where all your values lie and all your meaning lies and who you are, your identity lies. That part of you that endures beyond death and will exist forever. He says, entrust your souls, the most valuable thing you have, the most precious thing you have, the most vulnerable thing you have to this faithful creator while doing good. So how can we entrust our souls to Christ? I want to just stop here and do some application. I've been thinking through this, and so this is me, but I want to give us ideas of how we can take our souls and give them to God, and I want to do it in a Trinitarian way. What are you, oh man, he pulled out the multi-polysyllabic words there. He lost me now. I want to do it in a way that honors who God really is. I want to look to Christ, I want to look to the Spirit, and I want to look to the Father in, in, in how we can do this. So the first thing we can do is surrender to Christ. Surrender is a wonderful, beautiful Christian word. When you're in a situation where you're suffering according to God's will, one of the hardest things that we to do is to actually turn to Jesus and surrender to him. To stop fighting, to stop kicking, to stop screaming, to stop clawing, to stop just wanting to rip and tear and get out of this bag and get out of this corner and get out of this box and get out of this jail cell and get out of this problem and just to just stop and say, you're the creator and I'm going to surrender to you. 
Now, when we talk about surrendering to Christ, often we can feel like it means that we are giving ourselves up to whatever torturous plans that Jesus has for us, that somehow our good works will hold off, and if we keep moving and keep busy, we can avoid somehow. But that's not really how surrender works with Jesus. I want to tell you, give you two examples. One, I'm going to permit myself a little bit of geekiness here and talk a little bit of human history. So a, a little while before Jesus came into the world, uh, before Rome had conquered the entire world, Rome was the major or one of the major two um, people groups on the Italian peninsula. If you can remember that little boot shape that goes into the Mediterranean Sea. And near Rome was this city, and I think it was called Capua. And they were really wealthy because they had like the best farmland in that area. And so they were kind of like a Steinbeck, right? Like just tons of this you can farm like crazy and have all this great grain. And, uh, and that, but that's what they did. They were mostly like farmers and stuff. And so there were these guys called the Samnites who lived in the mountains. And so they didn't do a lot of farming, but they did know how to kill people and take their stuff which I don't know if mountain types do that. I'm from BC where there's lots of mountains and so far haven't been inclined towards that. And so the, the Samnites said to the Capuans, um, all your bases now belong to us. We're coming to your place. We're going to just sack your, your city and, and you're going to be, you're going to be toast. And so the city of Capua, I believe that's called either that or Kanai, but I'm pretty sure it's Capua. Um, they said, what are we going to do? I know what we'll do. They all got together. They said, we're going to surrender to Rome. We're getting threatened by the Samnites. We're going to surrender to Rome. And so they sent people to Rome and they said, guess what, Rome? We surrender to you. We're one of your cities now. We belong to you. Uh, Just so you know, they're these people. They all want to kill us. And so what Rome said is, this is an offer too good to pass up. Another city with no fighting? This sounds great. And so they said, okay, we accept your offer. You now are part of the Roman Empire or whatever it is. And then they started sending their messengers to the Samnites and said, by the way, you guys aren't doing anything to this city because they're part of us. And by the way, we have a peace treaty, so you can't attack them. We have a peace treaty. And the Samnites said, uh, we, don't, we don't like what you're doing here. Let's go to war. And the Romans said, great. And eventually they won. Okay, so this actually happened in human history. And this is the kind of surrendering we do to Jesus. Jesus, I surrender to you. By the way, I have all these problems. And Jesus says, I accept your surrender. Now all your problems are my problems. Your enemies are my enemies. Your battles are my battles. I am going to protect you and keep you because you belong to me. Okay, so that's what I'm talking about for surrender. The second example is a biblical one you might remember at the, near the end of Acts when Paul is speaking to the Jewish people in Jerusalem and they all want to kill him. He surrenders himself to Caesar. He says, I appeal to Caesar. I want justice from Caesar. And they said, okay, fine. So he surrenders to court with Caesar to protect himself from getting assassinated by the Jews. It's the same deal. Trouble's happening. Suffering's going up wrong. I appeal to Jesus. And in the presence of Jesus, that's where things are going to get settled. So I surrender to Christ. Whatever's going on, I'm going to stop fighting. I surrender to Christ. And now, and Christ responds by making your problems, his problems, your deals, his deals. He receives you as something worthy of possessing and something he wants to keep. The second thing we can do in order to entrust our souls to God is to really seek the Holy Spirit. 
when Jesus was about to go to heaven, he was speaking with his disciples and he said to them, I'm going to go and this is a good thing. If I don't go, I can't send the comforter. I can't send the paraclete. But he did go and he did send the spirit. And so just remember that title of comforter. That's why the Holy Spirit came. Because between Jesus dying and being raised from the dead and his return from heaven, there is going to be a near unlimited amount of comfort required by the church. Encouragement needed by the church. The presence of God longed for by the church. Healing required by the church. Near unlimited amount. And so Jesus sent the Spirit who is unlimited towards the church to be our comforter. And so when we are suffering according to God's will, the next thing we can do to entrust ourselves to God is say, come Holy Spirit. Come, I'm hurting. I don't want, if Jesus were here, I would want an embrace from him. If Jesus were here, I would want to be in his presence. If Jesus were here, I would run to him, but he's gone. So, and this is better. So come Holy Spirit. Come be you. Come do what you do. Come, Holy Spirit. Come to your church. Do the thing where you can change from the inside out. Do the thing where you can give supernatural joy, where joy does not naturally belong. Do that thing where you can give supernatural peace, where peace does not naturally belong. Do that thing where you can give supernatural love, where love does not naturally belong. Do your due, Holy Spirit. Come. Just come, come, come. If you're the kind of person, this is just a little nugget. If you're the kind of person whose love language is physical touch, sometimes you can feel a little ripped off because that's like the thing that God can't do right now. I I used to think like that. But I've come more to believe that actually that's what the Spirit was sent for. A kind of touch that goes way past skin on skin. A kind of presence which is way more than cuddling up on a couch. That's why he came. To comfort us. To lead us. To make the impossible possible in the name of Jesus. And the third thing we can do to entrust our souls to God is to rest on his promises. Earlier in the book of Peter, First Peter, Peter says, do not repay evil for evil. This is chapter 3 starting in verse 9. Or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For, and he begins to quote Psalm 34, Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. And here's the promise. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So there's a promise from the Old Testament you can lay hold of that if we seek to refrain from doing evil in response to suffering according to God's will, that God's eyes will be on us and his ears will be open to our prayers. Later on in chapter 5, Peter, just speaking directly, says this, Humble yourselves, therefore, verse 6, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he might exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. 
your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And here comes the promise from the very words of the Father. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And these promises in Scripture that after a while God will come if we look to Him and don't allow ourselves to get held captive by the devil. These things, when we look to His promises, we're giving our souls to the Father. Saying, God, if, you, if you're not faithful, I don't know what's going to happen. But you've promised. As I look to you, Your ears are open. As I humble myself before you, you at the proper time will bless and strengthen and restore. Peter ends his his sentence here by saying that those who suffer according to God's will and who are called to entrust their souls to a faithful creator, he ends with this little phrase, while doing good. Because I don't know if you've noticed, but doing good is, is, is a little bit harder to do when you're hurting. Have you ever noticed that before? And if you get up in the morning and you, you have your, your cup of coffee just undisturbed and it's kind of like a Scottish mocha with just the quick mix in there and with the little shot thing and it's, and everything, and it's sunny and somebody wakes up and makes you eggs and bacon. It just maybe just the bacon, maybe just two pounds of bacon. And everything's going great. It's not too hard to turn around and be like, thank you, good deed done for the day. I was appreciative, you know. I don't know if you've noticed, though, that if you wake up with a headache and the, the kid with the diarrhea explosion got all the way up to their hair and, and you get hit by that car, you didn't avoid it, it's a lot harder to do good and it's a lot easier to melt down, freak out, blow up, want revenge, want justice, want your pound of flesh. Maybe it's just me. And so Peter calls us to want to do good. And the reason he wants us to do that is because of Jesus. A few chapters earlier again, he's talking to servants or slaves And if there's anybody who in the ancient world was likely to be mistreated with no consequences, it would have been slaves. And he writes to them and he says this, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. See right there, my master is so unjust. Oh, if I just could poison that guy, I would do it. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. 
For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Now let me begin to underline these coming sections. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you. Elmer, I loved how you led us through communion today. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth, but when he was reviled, he did not revile in return, and when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Do you hear that? Why are we called to entrust ourselves? Because Jesus entrusted himself to the one who would bring about justice. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So Jesus loves you. He loves you to the point of torture and death for you. Not so that any of us would feel guilty and be like, oh, I guess I got to duh. But so that we would know that we're loved and see in Him and in His suffering an example for us to follow in doing good during suffering. And so some things that we can do to do good in response when we're suffering according to God's will is this. Number one, we can just remember to praise and give thanks and to seek contentment in the moment. It is a good work to learn to just sit. I'm just going to sit for a second and be content. Things are not how I want them, but obviously they're how God is letting them be right now. And so I'll just be content and, and seek to not fuss and seek to not fight and seek to not whine and seek to not gumble, grumble. This is a really good work. Jesus was reviled and he didn't revile. Jesus was, was threatened, he didn't threaten. The other thing we can, we can uh, seek to do is to turn the other cheek. Uh, this is from when Jesus was teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, and it's kind of like a kid thing. Let's learn, turn the other cheek. He's not talking about getting two pictures at the face painting stall at Summer in the City. He's talking about getting slapped on the face, which is both insulting and really painful. Like, if you get slapped in the face, it is not an ignorable blow. It just kills. You've got all these nerves all over your face, all these things going to your cheeks and your lips to smile from. If you get hit there, it kills. And Jesus just simply says, hey, if someone slaps you on the cheek, turn the other to them also, which is almost inhuman. To, to be so to be deeply painfully wounded and say, I expose to you again another place that isn't wounded. But it's a picture of seeking to walk in the forgiveness where you release people from your sense of your revenge. Seeking to instead please the Lord by just being where you're called to be and not seek that kind of justice we can sometimes seek when actually what we're just trying to do is, is uh, stick it to somebody. As I think through First Peter, which I've been reading a lot, 
I, I would be willing to argue that this is the main thing Peter wants Christians to do out of this book, is just learn how to not fight back out of a sense of personal justice or revenge. And if not the biggest thing, at least the top three. I'm going to press pause there. I know that sometimes when you get exhorted to trust the Lord, it can feel shallow. Because each one of us knows our own pain and nobody else knows it. So if someone comes and says, trust the Lord, you can be like, you trust the Lord, I'm hurting here. So I get it. But I want you to hear the creator of your souls calling you to his son afresh. And just say, hear the Father say, I had grace to get Jesus to the cross, through the cross, out of the grave, and back to heaven. And he can give you the same grace. All that you need to live your life. Many, We're all called to different lives. And each one of the sufferings we will endure in this life is uniquely tailored for the kind of reward God wants to give us and the kind of work he wants to accomplish in us and the kind of Christ-likeness that he wants to show through us as we submit to God's will and grow in Christ-like character through the hardships that we endure. And you know what? There is no sermon in the world that can take away God's will for your suffering. I just, I can't do it. But will you hear me calling you as a brother on behalf of Christ to take your soul whether it's hurting or embittered or happy or sad or frustrated or at a loss or discouraged, let's take our soul and give it to Jesus afresh this morning for him to do what he does best, which is love us in the midst of stuff. And then while we wait, give us grace to endure and at the right time do something amazing out of it. Amen. So I would like to invite the band to come up and we're just going to play. I, I had a crazy thought. What I'd like us to do is um, I'd like, I need some chair friends, people who are willing to push some chairs. I'd like us to push the chairs right to the sides of the room here because we're going to block off this space because I want this space available for quite some time and maybe the kids will come down and we just want some space where the kids can't run through. So if we can push the chairs over, uh, just up to that wall there is fine. Yeah, just 